a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 25 to chapter 3, verse 7. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The end of the reading. The Gospel reading is taken today from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. I don't know if you find it as true as I do, but when Dr. Jawardana reads the Scriptures, it takes me about two or three sentences before I realize what's happening inside myself. And usually what's happening is that I'm finding all of the energy, all of the nervousness, all of the anxiety within me is wanting him to read more quickly. And then I start to slow down and realize that he's trying to teach me, even in the style of his reading, to let the Scripture nourish me, to ponder it to store it up in my heart, to mull it over, 
So I find that, uh, Dr. Jai Warden, and I thank you, it helps me not just the reading, but even the way you bring the reading. This morning, we are going to hear from our provost, Dr. Stan Gady. And let me just mention that Dr. Gady has agreed to speak once a month in chapel. There are very few provosts in the country that would do that because he's in charge of basically everything you're about on this campus as students. And he sets aside time not only to speak once a month in chapel, but also to speak on topics that students have given him to speak on. And what that means for someone speaking is a brand new preparation every time. There's no pulling out a message that you'd prepared for another occasion that might fit here. And what that tells me is that the provost of Westmont College really does care about the students. And not just in words, but as John tells us, we're to love not merely in words and theories, but in deeds and truth. And to me, his willingness to prepare and work on a talk, which he will probably never give again, because students will ask for a different question later, uh, is evidence of his care for you. So I think it's appropriate this morning, even though we're in worship, to welcome Dr. Gady with a round of applause of appreciation. Thanks, Bart. As uh, Bart said, it is a student's choice again. Sort of. I say sort of because the question that I'm raising this morning has been asked by students, but also by most of the rest of us as well. And the question is, well, I don't want to tell you what the question is yet. About a month ago, Diana Spencer, otherwise known as Princess Diana, or Lady Di, was killed in a car accident in Paris, France. This is not news to you, I realize. The event captivated the world, with millions watching the funeral on TV and many more digesting every word that flowed from the press, the radio, whatever. It was a modern event in every sense of the word, and it captivated us. The interesting thing about this event, I think, was the extraordinary outpouring of interest and even affection for a person whose public accomplishments were by any standard and by her, her own admission rather modest. In saying this, I do not intend to be at all demeaning, by the way. Diana may have been a very fine person. She apparently gave herself to a number of worthy causes and especially in her later years seemed to reach out to those in need. Moreover, public accomplishment, as I'm using the term, is not necessarily the highest and greatest good. Diana may have been a good sister, a good friend, a good mother perhaps, and in the long run those are not small potatoes. Indeed, I would say that those things are of lasting significance. But you see, here's the problem. Only a few people knew her as a friend. Fewer still knew her as a mother or sister. That Diana was praised and mourned by those who knew her, that makes infinite sense to me. The part that is somewhat mystifying, however, is the praise and interest of the rest of us, those of us who knew her not and had only her public accomplishments to consider. What was the basis of our interest? What was the justification for our praise? 
The answer, of course, is that we were interested in her death because we were already interested in her life. In some sense, we all felt as if we knew her. I use the word felt with purpose here because, of course, we did not know her. We had all been exposed to snapshots of her life, her persona, filtered through the media. She was a public person, and we knew her like we know all public people, almost not at all. Which means that we now know two things about our interest in Diana. First, it was not based on documented or extraordinary public accomplishment. And second, it was not based on any reliable information of her life. Those are two rather significant qualifications, don't you think? So again, what is the basis for our interest? Some commentators have said that we were interested in Diana simply because we were interested in her. She was famous merely because she was famous. She had a title with no meaning. She had a public life without any public purpose. She was, in other words, simply the creation of the media, along with our collective need for entertainment, a media creation, if you will. There is some truth in that, I suspect, but I think it overly demonizes the press and more importantly, gets the rest of us off the hook. I don't want to defend the media, by the way, and their role both in creating and destroying Diana seems fairly substantial. But I think there is much more going on in here, and I think it is going on in us. The question we must all ask ourselves is, why did we care so much about Diana? Not why did the media create Diana. We know that. They created her because we bought everything they came up with. It was our consumption that fed the media. If you turn off our interests, the media starves. But the media was not starving. In Diana's case, it grew fat and strong and lethal. So why again this interest in Diana, this person about whom we knew so little with such modest public accomplishments? Well, let me throw out a hypothesis this morning for your consideration. I think Diana was and is everything we want to be. Consider the following. She had wealth that she did not earn. Doesn't that sound great? Sort of like winning a lottery, going to Las Vegas, bringing it all home, lots of cash, no sweat, just fortune, wealth she did not earn. She also had nobility, rank, title. That is, she had position without power. And doesn't that sound rather fine? People bowing to you, envying you, giving you access to absolutely anything and everything you want, but not expecting you to accomplish a thing because your title is honorific. It doesn't come with power. You're off the hook. What could be greater than that? Diana also had popularity and st stardom without responsibility. She didn't have to cut another album to stay popular, score another touchdown, win another war write another book, or do any of the other things that the rest of us need to do to stay in the public eye and win our reputations. All she had to do was just be Diana, and she remained popular, famous, the most photographed person in the world. Of course, she had a great many other attributes which we crave. She had beauty, charm, and grace, all of which were nicely suited to the role she had assumed, a role without substance or purpose, or responsibility. Quite a deal, don't you think? It's every kid's dream, in a way, wrapped up in one beautiful life. And yet, 
and yet it all seemed to run amok. Why would that be? Why would this charmed life, fulfilling every one of our childhood dreams, be so difficult and unhappy and so full of disappointment and pain? Well, actually, I think the answer is pretty easy. It's because unearned wealth is rarely appreciated by those who have it and always envied by those who do not. It's because position without power is usually frustrating to those who hold it, but always silly to everyone else, not to mention meaningless, purposeless, and empty. It's because popularity for the sake of popularity only breeds more popularity, which requires more coverage, more exposure, more paparazzi, and less and less freedom. And so, surprise of surprises, what one ends up with is nothing like fulfillment or contentment, but rather jealousy, frustration, silliness, and the slow but inevitable loss of oneself, loss of one's own time, loss of one's own direction, loss of one's identity, loss of one's life. Does that remind you of anything, by the way? Does it ring any bells? Is that not precisely, again, the story of Adam and Eve seeking something which looks good, promises fulfillment, and winds up taking away nearly every good thing they had? For the sake of one piece of fruit, they lost the whole garden. Sin, if nothing else, is at its core deception. And one of the most surprising things about us, we human beings, is that over and over again we will choose and aspire to gain those things which will inevitably destroy us. And then right in the midst of our grieving for Diana, we wake up one morning, open the newspapers, and suddenly learn that Mother Teresa has died as well. It was, I think, one of the most amazing coincidences of my lifetime. I mean, if any of us had written a script in which Princess Diana was killed while being chased by paparazzi with a chauffeur on multiple hallucinogens and then followed it up a few days later with the death of Mother Teresa. Well, who would have believed it or produced it? We would have been laughed right off the stage. Unreal, people would have said. Fantastic, a cosmic joke. But it did happen in bold headlines for all the world to see. There was no joke. Sometimes we complain that God speaks too softly that he doesn't answer our questions, that we wrestle day and night with the weighty issues of life, crying out to him and getting no answer. Well, my friends, this time he answered. This time he hit us over the head with a two-by-four. And the question is, were we listening? You see, if Diana is everything we want to be, Mother Teresa is everything we try to avoid, like the plague. While Diana had wealth without effort, Mother Teresa gave everything away. She used her effort to lose wealth, you might say. While Diana had position without power, Mother Teresa wound up with enormous power without position, a power based upon what she gave and what had been not what had been given to her. While Diana had status without responsibility, Mother Teresa took responsibility while she had little status for those who had even less. Of course, in the end, Mother Teresa herself became famous. But it was incidental, hardly seemed to matter, and it did absolutely nothing to change her work, her character, or her satisfaction. Of course, we, we admire Mother Teresa. 
which makes us all feel like we identify with her objectives and feel good about ourselves in the process. But the fact is, almost everything Mother Teresa had, we could have too. Almost everything she received, we could receive as well. Who of us cannot give away our money? Who of us cannot give of our time and energy to serve the sick and the poor? Who of us cannot take on the responsibility of serving those in need? So here's the deal. We admire Mother Teresa, but we do not emulate her. And that makes our admiration ring a bit hollow, don't you think? We pity poor Diana, and yet we dream at night about achieving precisely what she achieved in precisely the same way, at precisely the same cost. And yet, it cost her her life. Jim Elliott, who also lost his life, but did it while taking the gospel to the Auka Indians, once said, He is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to gain that which cannot be taken away. Which makes most of us precisely fools, dreaming of acquiring that which we are not likely to get, and which, if we got it, wouldn't satisfy us for more than a moment and cost us nearly everything we really enjoy. Well, this is an awfully serious talk, isn't it? Lighten up, Katie. Can't you say anything positive this morning about Diana, perhaps? Well, you know, I can. And indeed, I think Diana and Mother Teresa did have a few things in common, from what I could tell, which isn't much. They both possessed a certain grace and dignity, don't you think? Both had very revealing eyes, and from a distance anyway, you kind of liked what they revealed. In my opinion, they both had beauty as well, different to be sure, but in both cases a clear gift to the Creator. Neither were perfect, both sinned, and in their death they shared the spotlight, both receiving enormous amounts of attention and adulation. But in the end, Diana was a victim. We feel sorry for her. We are angered by those who brought her down. Mother Teresa was not a victim, however, and we feel nothing but joy and gratitude for the life she lived. She was not brought down, she was lifted up by the one who always lifts us up. Why don't we get what we want when we want it? That's the question of the morning. It took a while to get there, I know, but it takes a while to really hear the question, I think, as well as the answer. Why don't we, why can't we get what we want when we want it? That is a question I asked from day one, by the way. Indeed, I can't remember a time in my life when I did not ask that question. And I am sad to report it is a question which still periodically comes to my mind, if not my lips. Most of you know that I am the provost of this college, though most of you haven't a clue what that means. That's okay. Gives me lots of room to maneuver. <clears throat> but. I can tell you one thing that a provost does almost all the time. A provost tries to accomplish things. Indeed, a provost is nearly consumed with accomplishing things. I have my goals for the year, my objectives for the month, my daily list of things to do, and by and large, I think these are worthy objectives. I hope they are. But worthy or no, there is one thing I can guarantee you absolutely. Some of these objectives will be thwarted. And all too often, as far as I'm concerned, the thwarted goals will be the ones that matter most, the ones I really wanted to accomplish, 
the ones I thought would really make a difference to the college, to the faculty, to the students, and of course me. And what do I do? Well, I do the same thing the rest of you do. I get really ticked off, grumble around for a while, make nasty comments to those around me, especially those I really care about. And eventually, after I pretty much made a fool of myself and hurt a lot of people whom I love, I cry out, why not, Lord? What are you doing anyway? Don't you know how helpful this would be? What a good thing this would be? How much it would benefit the college, not to mention me? And then after a deep breath and a heavy sigh, I usually try to make peace with the thing by quickly, much too quickly, explaining it all away through some reference to the fall, blaming it all on sin, saying that it's a hard life and woe is me or something of that kind. And of course, that's all true. Life is hard and sin is pervasive, but it never makes me feel much better. And as often as not, I have concluded, it isn't a very good answer either. In fact, I think most of the time, in my life anyway, I am frustrated in my dreams and aspirations not because the world is rotten, but because the Lord is good. Not because of the fall, but because of redemption. Not because God is silent, but because he is a caring and knowledgeable God and knows that much of what I want wouldn't be good for me. That what I want to gain is, in fact, not what I should have. You see, when we say the Lord is good, we typically think of that in terms of what God gives us, don't we? He gives us X, Y, and Z, and we say, oh, wow, Lord is good. But I suspect that as often as not, God's goodness is revealed not in what he gives us, but what he withholds by frustrating our aspirations, in other words. In our frustration, I think we see his mercy. In our text this morning, we read these words from Jesus. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Familiar words. It is interesting to me how we read these words of Jesus, however, and how we hear them. Most of us hear them as negative, don't we? Oh dear, I've got to value things that have value someday when I get to heaven. And I shouldn't value anything now that would, of course, be fun. But in fact, this is a very existential command. Jesus is talking about right now. Right now, if you put your heart on riches, beauty, or finery, right now, you will pay the price. Right now, it will be stolen. Right now, it will fade away. Right now, it will not satisfy. But if you put your heart on things that are eternal, Right now, you will have your treasure. When I was five years old, I wanted a big red fire engine, the kind you could sit in, drive around like a tricycle, and go ding, 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 as you hurtled down the road, driving everyone completely crazy. And I knew that when I got that fire engine, I would be so happy. When I was in junior high, I wanted to go to the movies instead of having to watch them on TV. For some reason, my church had concluded that watching movies on television was okay, but seeing them in the theater was sinful. And so I knew that there must be something wonderful and exciting about going to the theater. And it would make me so happy. 
When I went off to high school, what I wanted more than anything in the world was a driver's license. And I couldn't wait for the day when I could jump into a car, turn the key, and go anywhere and everywhere I wanted, with whomever I wanted, anytime I wanted. My freedom would be unlimited, my opportunities unbelievable, and I would be so happy. When I graduated from high school, I wanted my own car. Not just any car, however. I wanted a new car, a fast car, a really cool car, with, tr with tuck and roll leather interior, glass pipes, and a deep metallic paint job. I wanted, I wanted a GTO. Ever hear of it? <laughs> Little GTO, you're really looking fine. Three deuces and a four speed and a 389. So what happened? Well, what happened, surprisingly, is that in every one of these cases, I got exactly what my heart desired. I got that red fire engine at the age of five, drove it around the yard for three days in a row without stopping, and then didn't touch it again for the rest of my life. Why? It was slower than my tricycle. My brother made fun of it, and the bell started driving me crazy as well. <laughs> and what about the theater? Well, eventually I managed to sneak off to the movies by myself while no one was looking. I chose a really juicy movie called The Days of Wine and Roses, starring Lee Remick and Jack Lemmon, because I knew that it would satisfy my every longing. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I got instead. <laughs> Pretty much a lecture on the dangers of alcohol, tucked into a haunting love story of two people torn between their love for each other and their love for the bottle. I was looking for sin, and I got a sermon. And of course, I eventually got my driver's license, and believe it or not, a brand new GTO. Made to order, precisely according to the dream. Green metallic paint job, white tuck and roll interior, and fast. You can't believe how fast that car would go. And what happened to the GTO? Well, some of you already know. It wound up being totaled, the victim of a head-on car accident on Highway 1, about 100 miles north of here, bearing an uncanny resemblance to a crumpled-up Mercedes in Paris, France with one survivor, me. What happened, anyway? Where did the happiness go? What became of my childhood dreams? You know, see, the problem with all these things that promised to be so delightful and fulfilling is that they were not, not fulfilling, not designed for happiness, and most importantly, not forever. The biggest problem with such things, in other words, is that they are best, at best, temporary, quickly lost, easily forgotten, suddenly transformed into a heap of crushed metal in the middle of Paris or California. Why did Jesus say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth? Not because there is something wrong with material things, but something unworthy. They aren't bad. They just don't deserve your heart. 
Sometimes people read these words of Jesus and they conclude that they've got to cut themselves off from material things, eat boring food, wear sackcloth and ashes, deny their senses. But, you know, I think that completely misses the point. Indeed, those who draw that conclusion may be every bit as trapped by materialism as those, as those who crave it, only in reverse. Because whether you indulge yourself or cut yourself off, you are still giving things too much attention, too much importance, too much of your heart. You see, the real question of the morning is not why can't I get what I want when I want it, but to whom does your heart belong? Jesus thinks the answer is pretty clear. Your heart belongs to God, who created all things and gives us all things, not so that we might worship the creation nor despise it, but honor the Creator and enjoy Him forever. Mother Teresa understood that fact, I think, and so what the Lord had given to her she found easy to give to others. May it be so with us. Let us pray. Well, Lord, here we are again, with our heads bowed again, hearing again what we have known for a long time, that our hearts belong to you, this is not news, that you are the creator and source of all good gifts, we know that as well. But what is fresh and refreshing and new every morning is your forgiveness and mercy and your willingness to begin a new work in our lives. And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness again. Forgive us for seeking that which we know will destroy us. Forgive us for clinging to that which we know won't last. O oh, Holy Spirit, come. Make this your resting place, our lives your sanctuary. Replace our lust for death with a genuine love of life, that we may see in every gift the giver and give our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stay for a minute or two more to pray for one of our community members, Kimberly Kelly. I was away last week, and so I just learned this morning of her illness. And today is a very important day for her. She is in Colorado, if I understand it correctly, and she's meeting with her doctors to get the precise diagnosis uh, on her illness, which they think is cancer, and specifically on the treatment that she will need. She is very much hoping to come back to Westmont and would like us to pray for the wisdom for the doctors to not only diagnose her illness properly, but to figure out what the best uh, treatment is. And so I'd like us to just be quiet for a moment and think of Kimberly and her doctors. Um, I had not planned this, so I'm not quite sure how we should do it. I think I'm going to just open it up, and if a few of you want to pray out loud, 
that will be fine. And if not, we'll just pray quietly and then I'll, I'll close us off. Father, we pray for Kimberly right now. We lift her up and ask for your comfort in the midst of a very traumatic realization of her ill health. So serious, Father. We pray that you support her, encourage her. We pray for her family as well. Father, we pray for the doctors. We honor the fact that they've given their lives to the study of medicine, that they're using their disciplines to help people. And we pray that you will give their limited knowledge, but disciplined knowledge, your grace, so that they might diagnose and treat her illness as effectively as possible. And, Father, we pray that your healing touch would be very much interwoven with their attempts to heal her through medicine as we know it. And, Father, we want to honor her desires by praying that the treatment will be successful, that your hand will heal her, and that she will.